0: And welcome back to The Rookie Podcast. I'm Tavi Gavinson, the host of this show, which um, has a new theme song by Shamir. If you don't already know it, it's his song Make a Scene from the album Ratchet, which is really good. And um, we're really excited to have it. So thank you to Shamir. So why not go out and make a scene? Today on the show,
1: I will be talking to the author of Too Much and Not the Mood, Durga Chubos. As long as you keep those people in your life, you'll constantly be thinking these thoughts, and you'll constantly be, you know, moving forward and being an elaborate person. And then we'll learn a new life skill, how to correct people when they mispronounce your name, from rookie
2: contributor Jamia Wilson. Not a day goes by when someone doesn't mess up my name, so... I make a point of correcting folks when they mispronounce my name, and I affirm people who pronounce my name correctly on the first try. But first,
0: we'll hear from rookie readers who are now rookie listeners about what rookie means to them. If you're new to this show, I hope it'll be a nice intro, and if you're not so new, I hope it'll be fun to hear the voices of other rookies. And if this happens to be your first time listening to The Rookie Podcast, welcome. Uh, I recommend checking out our earlier episodes, too. There are interviews with Lord Winona Ryder, and lots of other amazing guests. So let's get to it. I am 18 and I'm from Spain. My name is Isabella, I'm Karina, Catherine, Amber, Emily, Marissa, Deborah, Kia,
1: Bridget, Zineb, Mary Kate, I'm 15 years old and I'm from New Zealand. I'm 17 years old, and I'm from Boynton Beach, Florida. I'm 15 years old. I'm 18. 18. I just turned 23. I'm 16. 14. 17, and I'm from New York. Conyers, Georgia. Los Angeles.
0: In
2: Toronto, Ontario.
0: Vancouver. Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I am from Morocco, but I live in France.
1: When I turned 13, I was absolutely afraid of what was to come. But when I found Rookie, I felt as though I wasn't alone.
0: I love Rookie so much because it makes me feel less alone.
1: Rookie is the place where I go when I've just had a terrible test and my brain has melted and I'm sitting at the back of class and I'm just not really sure what to do. And Rookie is always there to remind me that I'm more than just that mark. I'm more than just what that person said about me today. I am someone who contains multitudes. Rookie reminds me that it's okay to be confused by being 15 and not really sure what to do. To me, Rookie is comfort. I'm immersed in the creativity and the talents of young girls. It's
0: the place that I go to when I need to figure out why I'm feeling a certain way and how other girls have felt and how to get over that. I was dealing with really bad anxiety and was feeling completely hopeless but it it made me realize that I wanted to get better for me and stay alive and and live my life for myself. Rookie is a community. It's a space that has allowed me to meet some of my best friends in the whole world, a resource
1: for learning about feminism. The media puts out this for teenage girls and people think that we're all the same which we're not it's a positive inclusive community
2: and everyone is welcome this little corner of the internet it's basically my home it's I use it as an outlet from school from family from uncooperative friends who don't seem to understand everything about me
1: how did I
2: find out about Rookie.
1: Okay, so my best friend actually introduced me to Rookie. When Rowan Blanchard wrote a piece for the site, I saw her tweet it. I've found Rookie through Tavi. I've been following Tavi for a while now. So I clicked on the URL, and I just lost myself in the archives for a couple of hours. I love every episode of Upasna asks. The comic, do I like you or do I just like the idea of you? Petra Collins's um, back-to-school shoot. The piece that
0: my friend Tahabu wrote called "The Right to Be a Black Girl" because it's just so smart. The perfect girl by Lexi Harder. Someone put into words how I felt about the world. I just
2: love how rookie piece will not necessarily give you the absolute definite answer to all your problems and
1: because well actually you can't really find the absolute definite answer
2: anywhere. I love how I can be completely honest. I don't have to be scared to ask questions about sex or anything that I feel awkward asking. It feels real. It feels raw and oh my god, I'm not the only one who's dealing with this. I'm not always around people who love writing, who love art, and to be able to find this community was absolutely one of the greatest things in my life. Thank
0: you for sending these. They were so wonderful to listen to. It can feel so weird and disconnected making a website and things that people get online because you don't see them in person. So hearing all of your voices was amazing, even if it was just um, my parents using a voice modulator. So um, we'll be asking to hear from you again soon. And if you want to send us a voice memo in the meantime, please do. You can email it to podcast at rookiemag.com. We'll be back with more Rookie after this break. Durga Chubo's recently released a book of essays called Too Much and Not the Mood, published by FSG, in which she writes about the nature of being a daughter, her love of movies, living alone, and so much more. Um, I really loved this book. I knew I would because Durga is—I mean, I have loved everything she's written. Um, she's also, if this isn't clear from the interview, a friend of mine, and it's really special to read something. It's really special when your friend's work matches who they are as a person. Like you talk about separating the art from the artist and stuff like that, but and that's fine. But it's kind of amazing when what you like about someone's art also reflects what makes them an amazing person. And her writing is the kind that just makes the world look different once you set it down. Um, Like this book makes the world feel really cinematic, but it also makes really tiny private moments feel really important. Her work has appeared in publications like The New Inquiry, BuzzFeed, The Hairpin, The Guardian, and she also teaches a writing course at Sarah Lawrence. I talked to Durga about her new book being very specific in her writing and tensions of identity coming up right now. I'm just relieved to have a conversation with you recorded because I feel like I'm always trying to remember stuff you said later and write them down.
1: Me too. I feel like whenever we text our really long text conversations, a week later I'll try to retrieve it and I'm just like scrolling back, scrolling back, scrolling back and I can't ever find it. So
0: well, That was one thing I wanted to ask you because I am currently dealing with the problem that I have that if I ever write like anything kind of decent I'll like save the whole email or screenshot or text or whatever and now I'm just dealing with this like Google Drive folders within Google Drive folders of like emails to you or my parents or um my doctor or someone (laughs) where like that's like mostly useless information to me now but because there's like one line that I thought was maybe good and like you are someone who just you write texts like you wrote your book, like you're consistently beautiful in how you speak. And how do you like are you
1: cobbling together and saving things, too? Or do, does that just come out of you all the time? It's funny you mention that because sometimes we'll be texting and I'll press send and it'll be blue and you'll get it. And I'll think, oh, God, I'm so I'm so intense all the time. Oh. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just I'm not a casual texter. So, as long as it doesn't bother you. Um, <laughs> of course not. Am I constantly saving things? I wish. I think I live with the hope that these feelings will renew themselves. Yeah. It's blind. It's just blind hope that nothing is that precious. Or if it's something I've said that I think is has meaning or I could use later, it'll find its way back into my mind. But maybe that's just because I'm lazy and I don't want to keep a lot of Google documents or no. something. No. I think that's healthy. I'm like trying to get to that.
0: I like writing. I find it fun. It becomes not fun when I when it's from a place of fear and scarcity and I become rigid and I feel mm-hmm. like I'm trying to cobble together bits like as if it's
1: all downhill <laughs> and I yeah, can only no. have... That sounds overwhelming. You yeah. know what? I actually, I guess something I remind myself of is it's two, <laughs> it, there's two things. I guess I feel like... In these kind of situations where you're exchanging texts or emails with people that inspire you or provoke you to think your your sharpest thoughts, I feel like they those people make you your most like abundant self. And so, as long as you keep those people in your life, you'll constantly be thinking these thoughts, and you'll constantly be, you know, moving forward and being an elaborate person. So, you know, as long as those people stay in your life, but also, I feel like. Some of the fear and the scarcity is that we think there's not a lot of room in the world for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I always remind myself, even though this might not be true, that there's room for everybody. So, like, no thought you have has to be that original or
0: mm.
1: or whatever. Like, there's there's room for everybody's version of themselves. So even if some of your writing one day isn't what you think is the best or you said it better in an email, you know, tomorrow's a new day. Ooh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I might just be saying these things to myself because I am a bit lazy. <laughs> but I think, you're, I
0: think you're right, though. It's crazy reading your book because it feels like what you just described, like um, as if I was just hanging out with you and then I start noticing more things and that part of me is brought out from reading your book or from talking to you. So I know it's a book of essays, But the last essay and the last page really feel like you wrote them last. Like I finish it and I picture you like closing your laptop and walking along the beach or something. Maybe not. Um, But was there a sense of sequence as you worked on it? Like you talk so much about the joy of circling conclusions and writing being a way to create a portrait of the unknown instead of seeking resolution. Mm -hmm. But did any part of this feel like I made it. I found it. I have the answer. Cause that is kind of how finishing it felt.
1: Yeah, I think actually it was like finishing it real made me feel like um, maybe the opposite of having the answer or op- the opposite of re- resolution, which I don't necessarily think means openness. But I feel like I got to get to a point where I put a lot of myself in the book and this weird thing happens when you put a lot of yourself into something then you come out of it feeling like now you have room for more to experience in life so I think that's sort of how I feel like sort of like that first night you sleep on your bed with clean sheets or Mm -hmm. something it just felt a freshness um but not necessarily you know unburdened actually on the way here I was thinking whenever I ride the subway I feel like someone has thrown me into, like, the spin cycle because for some reason on the subway, I, like, I do my best thinking and all these, like, ideas come to my mind or turns a phrase or an essay I might potentially want to one day write into the in the future or something to do with my mother that I haven't considered in a couple years. And then I feel suddenly anxious, like, how am I going to use this? What happens when I get to my stop and I forget everything? Writing the book is a lot of that. So, like, kind of finishing that last essay felt like I had, when you – reach the stop and you're going to meet a friend and you're like, oh, whatever, Durga. Like, you've thought about it. It's somewhere in you. But, like, that, like, high-level pitch of anxiety that happens when you're writing kind of diminished by the end. Um, But it's funny that you notice that because that is the last essay I wrote. Hmm. And working on those last lines was very much kind of an act of, like, final devotion to the book, you know?
0: Yeah, it feels like a space between... Giving all this weight and importance and value to these observations and going into worlds of detail around minute things that happen in your day. But then also this sense of acceptance with the kind of ongoingness of all of that.
1: A lot of people have asked me about the experience of writing the book and I use the word unconscious a lot. I say that I don't believe I was totally conscious when I was writing it. That said, when you're talking about the end, um, this is something I was talking to some of my students about this week. Actually, they'll often hand something into me, and and they'll they'll have this whole long spiel. I don't think I did the assignment properly, or I don't really know where this is going, or it might not be finished, or I don't really know what happened. I'm sorry. It's like they hand it in and apologize, and it's always invariably the best writing that they've done and also I really enjoy when they let themselves make those go on these tangents go into this space that they feel is like like off road kind of like off roading the essay or whatever because it means that they've let their like this unconscious self kind of take over Mm -hmm. and they let that happen as opposed to keep the restraint and like do what Durga assigned or whatever Right. and I described it to my students as, you know, when you decide you're going to do spring cleaning or whatever, organize your apartment, you have to create so much mess, like an impossible amount of mess before you figure out the pattern or where you're going to store things. And then you get super overwhelmed because you look around and suddenly you're kind of like surrounded by piles of socks and old letters and you just feel a bit desperate. That's what this book was like. Like the unconscious part was like the mess that happens right when you're organizing. Mm. Like you think you're organizing, but in order to get to that place, you need to just throw everything out of the boxes and kind of like sit on the floor with your old letters or something. Mm. And then by the end, I felt like I had found a system for storing things. Mm. That's sort of how it felt for me, psychically at least. But the unconscious part, is really, it really caught me off guard. I I'm a, I'm, I I consider myself someone who's very deliberate. And I use that word a lot when I talk about my writing, but in this funny way, the book kind of felt like, you know, that part, you know, when Alice in Wonderland, like, eat me, like, it felt mm-hmm. like I was going into that zone of losing a sense of, like, dimension and everything.
0: Whoa, yeah, you feel, like, this sense of abandon and then a sense of a really thoughtful observation and then it just kind of like takes off again and Mm -hmm. it's both of those working together that I find so uh, just so special to read but how do you I mean it really takes time and space to let yourself get to that level of thought and I know that you left New York for a bit Mm -hmm. to write this um you're always reminding me, protect your flame. Like you're cur-
1: reminding me. You're, you're the oh. one who first brought that up. Oh. Well, <laughs> good one, Tufts. Um, <laughs> how
0: do you take the time and space for yourself to do what you do best?
1: Oddly, I think it has less to do with me and more to do with everyone I surround myself with because mm-hmm. I think if you form this sort of relationships with people who want the best for you and believe in you, then there's no pre- – because so much of that stuff is the pressure to please others, you know, or to not be forgotten. But if you have people in your life who are so supportive of your work and believe in your vision and believe that the voice in your head, like Hilton has told us, is invaluable. then Hilton, f- Hilton um, who is also on the show. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I loved his part. That was I know. great. There's more. Keep going. But yeah, I feel like as long as you have those people in your life, which is a whole other part of living as a person, is working towards those kind of relationships, I think. A lot of that pressure wanes, and you can go away for months and no one's gonna hold it against you, or you cannot show up for things and no one's gonna hold it against you, or you can become a little strange and odd because writing makes you a little eccentric if you're really involved in a project. And um, it's, so yeah, so it's almost like a question of other people and how supportive they've been to me that has given me the space to finish a book or to say no to things, um, to write about them. You know, like, so much of my book is about my friends, and I never felt, like, this need for permission all the time because I felt like we had created a language of um, community and sharing and that, like, our ideas are part of, like, how we support each other as well. So that was a huge part of it. I never felt like it was this huge—like, I never— I never experienced the goodbye to all that New York thing. I didn't need it. It wasn't like a desperate act of fleeing. It was more a question of knowing that everyone's still going to be here when I'm done the book.
0: Yeah. Um. So that was really helpful. That reminds me of a part in the book where you say, you say, it still comes as a shock to me how irreversible life is. Uh, there's no going back to whatever version of me existed before. And then you list all these things like before this movie, before this, before mm-hmm. that. And then one of the things you say is before I figured out that there's no one way to live.
1: Yes. How did you figure that out? Oh, gosh. I wish I knew when that moment became more clear to me. But I think, honestly, a, a couple of things. I think watching people you love. Succeed in something they had been hesitant about is is really a moment of clarity. Like watching someone for a year is saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, and then suddenly they've made a film. Mm. You know, which for me is like a different version of living the life they were living before. Or, um, you know, leaving New York. There's other ways to be a writer and not live in New York. I'm incredibly close to my parents and part of why I wanted to live in Montreal again was to experience the casual relationship of being an adult daughter and seeing them whenever I wanted to. And I feel like I had to experience a lot of doubt thinking like, oh, I failed as an adult that I want a relationship with my parents, which now is so absurd to even say out loud. But that's another way to live, you know, to want Mm -hmm. to be an adult daughter who can just get dumplings with her dad on a Tuesday for whatever reason and it not be like a huge catch up session, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was it, too. It's like a question of just letting go of all these ideas of what it means to be all the compartments that the world wants you to be, like a woman, a writer, whatever. Like, you're just yourself. And if you have needs, try to fulfill them. And if you have wants, try to reach for them. And I think that was part of it. A letting go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We've talked about this. I don't know if it's something you feel comfortable talking about in this setting, but not wanting your work to be defined by your Indian heritage. Yeah. But then also not wanting to be so against that, that you end up erasing that part of yourself mm-hmm. and that whole tug of war. And I wonder how that has felt since, with the book coming out now.
1: Yeah, I've had to reconsider that a little bit, honestly. Like. I- I'm someone who, like, loves to claim there's beauty in uncertainty. But, of course, in real life, I still remain very certain of a few things. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that I don't ever want to be – I don't want to be anything ever. <laughs> like, I don't want to ever be introduced as all the qualifiers that people want to call me. Like, Canadian, South Asian, woman, feminist, whatever. I just I just want I, – I sometimes don't even want to be me. Like, I don't even want to be Durga. Just, like – a certain like, level of anonymity, I think, is really powerful. And so since the book has come out, I've had to contend with that in that when people write about it, they love to string together like there's a choo-choo train in front of my name of qualifiers. And it's like kind of like really a mouthful often. And I've tried to think about it generously in that this makes it easier for other people to figure me out or to place me or to introduce me. But then I also question when a writer does that, is it because they themselves don't have people close to them in their lives who are maybe South Asian? Because I would never describe any of my friends (laughs) with those qualifiers, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, honestly, it's just easier to say someone's a writer, for instance, right? So... It's made me have to kind of sit back and question why we do this as a society, why we have to put people in their compartments, why we have to introduce them that way. But it's also made me embrace certain parts of my heritage, my parents' heritage, too, because... South Asian women will reach out to me specifically because of parts in the book that they are seeing articulated or tensions, even tensions like I don't want to be only seen that way. Mm. And they can say, yeah, me too. So it's been an interesting mix. And I think that there's nothing more humbling than encountering someone who has experienced the same pushback that I've experienced. Like I actually prefer connecting with someone less on a me too level and more on a yeah, I totally wanted nothing to do with that either. <laughs> you know, like it's like it's like it's it's like instead of like a sweet connection, it's kind of sour and I prefer that. But yeah, I'm still I don't know, it's something I've got to work on a lot more, I think, because I want to figure out why I feel a resistance sometimes to being identified solely as how other people want to see me. Remember when we were talking about um I went to the Alice Neal show at David's Werner, and there's one painting of a woman in like a fuchsia sari and gold bangles and a gold ring, and I often wear gold bangles and a gold ring, and the braid in the painting was so beautiful, and I went to the show with you. Oh, yeah, we were together. Why am I talking about it like you weren't there? That was so weird. That didn't occur to me. Actually, that's a real testament to our friendship because it means I can go to a show and feel like I'm alone, even when I'm with my friend. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a great thing. So, and when I took the picture, I told you I was like feeling a bit uncomfortable because of course that's like the one painting I felt I wanted to document, the Indian woman. Mm. But it was really cause I wanted to send it to my dad too. And so I go, d- maybe not daily, but at least weekly, I have these moments of suddenly like, Am I playing the role that I've been told to play, or I just love to be connected to things that bring to mind my family? You know, I was just Mm -hmm. shopping at a store, and the one of the first fabrics that I kind of just was like magnetically drawn to had an e-cut print, which is a print that it was all over my house growing up because it's a print that's from India, and. I was talking to the shop girls and I was saying, I I, I didn't even articulate a sentiment. I just went to the fabric, touched it and said, oh, my mother. Like, that's not even really anything. It's just me saying, mom, you're here, kind of. So, you know, it's not always so like fighting against. There's often a really nice moment where you see something and you're kind of like, this is me. So, I don't know. It's something I'm just trying to figure out as I go along. And I actually hope I never really figure out the answer to it.
0: You said how like, oh, it can be generous to realize this is a way for the person reviewing my book to understand who I am. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of a way for them to feel ownership or to get to claim the work of someone as, you know, part of their taste and what it says about them that they're, like, writing about a woman with all of these qualifiers. And, like, you don't want the contempt for that to become contempt for your relationship to your heritage. Oh,
1: yeah. Wow. You just, yeah, that's exactly it, Tommy. <laughs> I feel like I need to pay you $100 now because I'm like, thanks, therapist. No, that's oh. it. That's exactly it. It's like I don't want to, like, metabolize how other people define me as a reason for me to just reject where I'm from you know, I kind of want to convert that energy into pride, but sometimes I feel like I can't because it comes so naturally for other people to call me how they see me. Mm-hmm. But it's for me, it's just funny because, like, you know, I talk about my obsession with young Al Pacino in my book, and no one has been, like, the young Al Pacino-lover, writer,
2: Dirk and Chubos, <laughs> you know? Like,
1: I have other enthusiasms and loves and things that have made me who I am. I really mm-hmm. believe that, you know? Like, nothing makes you more of yourself I think than the person you have a crush on in Mm -hmm. some ways and so um, but people really want to pick the identity stuff that Mm -hmm. is like palatable to them or geographic or whatever and so I think that's but I think what you just said is exactly it like I want to figure out a way to exist in this world where how people describe me and what makes it comfortable for them doesn't have an effect on me that's very kind of like well I'm going to I'm going to be the complete opposite of that. I want to find a way to embrace it, maybe gracefully. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean,
0: it reminds me of an essay I was just reading and sent you a picture of about the artist Agnes Martin by Jill Johnston, where she goes to her house in New Mexico, and it's really hard to find, and Agnes was living like a recluse, and There's this tension where, like, Jill doesn't want to create distance between them by bringing up feminism because she's like, this woman was born in 1912. She's a recluse. She just wants to throw mud at her truck. She Like, I know she doesn't have the context that I do for talking about this stuff, and I don't want to get into that territory with her. But then she finds herself doing it anyways and saying, like, oh, well, people write whatever – write XYZ about you because you're a woman. And Agnes Martin's like, no, I'm not. I'm a doorknob. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that. (laughs) And it really is. I mean, I feel like I see, you know, I think it's so great how often people are talking now about representation in all types of media and entertainment. But I think there's a common misunderstanding where like I feel like I want to get up and be like, no, 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 we don't want this one person to have to be everything for everyone. We just want more people with different backgrounds who get to be their exact selves. I mean, it breaks my heart when I feel like I'm editing someone who feels like they have to speak for everyone from their community. And when you do that, you end up not saying anything at all because you feel like you can't be specific. Mm -hmm. And on the internet, especially, like, it's so easy to take something out of context and for something you write to not, for it to not be clear to someone that you're just talking about yourself. I just, I love the pages and pages of your book where you're just like, actually it reminds me of something that Hilton else wrote about Alice Neal, where she, he said her only, because she did all these portraits, her only hierarchy was her interest in the subject
1: yes he that essay is amazing it was in the new yorker right yeah he he talks about how she's managed to make the inclusive eye as opposed to the exclusive eye but it is it is a question of specificity because honestly what drew me to that painting for instance was the gold bangle you know and and so it's almost like honestly i think that the remar- what makes specificity so remarkable, I think on both sides, is as a writer or an artist, it's a real challenge. You know, it's work, it's fun work, it's like puzzle work. But for the reader, it's so funny how the more specific you are this strange thing happens where it leaves so much more room for the reader to connect and bring their own stories. You think it's the complete opposite, but there's nothing more alienating to me than vague writing with, like, banner statements. Like, the more someone just, like, brings me into their world, like, deep, deep into their world, uh, the more I feel like there's room for me to bring my world with me, too, but it's so funny that Agnes Martin was like, "No, I'm a doorknob," because I was just thinking, "Yeah, sometimes I just want to be like a throw cushion. I don't want to be. I don't want to be anything. Like that's what I meant. Like I don't want to be anything. I want to be whatever the work is I made for that moment, mm-hmm. and that's it. But yeah, that's so funny. She is a doorknob. Yeah, such a doorknob. That's so well put, though. Like with
0: like so many." rookie readers over the years have been like I'm worried that my life isn't interesting enough to write about or I'm worried that when I'm older like nothing exciting will happen to me or I'll become a boring grown up and I won't have anything to write about and I actually did a few months ago I did a workshop at Girls Right Now and I read them apart from your book where you talk about which Michael Jackson song is it who is it, who the is Jal- it? yeah Oh, the jealousy anthem. (laughs) Yeah. And I read it aloud to them. And then afterwards, they were like, what was the name of that and writing it all down? Because I was like this. You just need to go in deep to the specifics. And like the first of all, your writing doesn't have to be relatable, period. But if that is something you want it to be like people, we all experience the same emotional range. So it's not like you need to describe an experience that someone else has had. If You're describing your own experience in detail, then someone would probably relate to the emotion.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mood, the emotion. Also, there's something, when you are specific, you radiate some kind of a glow, and people want to be near that glow. You know, when you're vague, you're very flat. Not Mm -hmm. you, but, like, a writer, an artist. The moment you really get to whatever the soul of what you're describing is, even if it's a song, like, it doesn't always have to be a deep memory or some kind of trauma or some, like, aha moment. It can just be pure adulation. But the moment you decide to devote a lot of yourself to it, you kind of, em- like, you you radiate something. And then I think that's part of the experience, too, for the reader. The reader kind of wants to get near to that glow, even if they might not know what that song is or have no relationship to what you're talking about is. It's just a question of proximity.
0: Who are the writers who made you feel like, oh, yes, there is value in getting into details and specifics and minutia?
1: Um, a lot of poets, actually. I think it's because the one thing that poets do is like this really fine mix of being really specific and odd, but also a poem can exist in such a brief moment, but then it lingers for so long. And so I think that's like an upshot of being specific. Um, Frank O'Hara, for sure. He is so open and so himself. Um, which is a which is a which is a great combination, I think, for all readers. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of other writers that really made. Uh, I'm on the off the top of my head. We've talked about Vivian Gornick as the angry good girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm even trying to think of in terms of like fiction because I've often felt like I'm writing fiction, even though I'm writing nonfiction. Arundhati Roy. When I first read her, when I was younger, I felt like she was really being specific, and it kind of, um, for me, felt like she was cracking open the world for me, but, like, inviting me in, which I hadn't always experienced. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's so hard for me to answer that off the top That's of my head. That's right.
0: I want to know more about it feeling like fiction when you're writing nonfiction.
1: Oh, the act of writing is so, like I said, unconscious that half the time I I feel like I'm just stringing together a series of lies that are brushing up against my memory. So I, can, hmm. I guess that's why I call it fiction. But I think it's also giving myself the room to kind of... Remember with all my senses feels like fiction. Because when you're experiencing life, you're not like, how did it smell like? What did it look like? What would it feel like? You're just there. And then when you're writing about it, you're adding all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's the part that feels like fiction. But I guess also part of the white reason why I use fiction is because I don't want to feel the restraint of saying something exactly as it happened. I want to feel the boon of traveling back and I, if i stick to not the idea that it has to be the truth which is impossible then you know the writing is also just less fun writing is not always fun most of the time it isn't so having kind of a fictional mind about your life but also it's just my love for stuff like the movies and stuff like you get to be cinematic durga thanks so much thank you tommy That was my
0: conversation with Durga Chuboz, author of Too Much and Not the Mood. We'll be back with more after this break. Welcome back to Rookie. It's time for another segment of Life Skills where Rookie contributors share their wisdom on everything from dating and making friends to standing up for yourself. Today we have Rookie Contributor Jamea Wilson teaching us how to correct people when they mispronounce your name.
2: Hi, I'm Jamia Wilson and I'm a writer for Rookie and I live in New York City. Today I've got a life skill for you. How to correct people when they mispronounce your name. Once a teacher mispronounced my name on the first day of school. When I corrected him, he responded with, Shakespeare. Oh, but you know what they say. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Although I appreciate Romeo and Juliet as much as anyone else, I also love my name because it's a part of my identity, my origin story, and the vision that my parents had for me as soon as they met me. Not a day goes by when someone doesn't mess up my name. So... I make a point of correcting folks when they mispronounce my name, and I affirm people who pronounce my name correctly on the first try, from TSA staff to my barista at Starbucks. It irritates me when folks repeatedly mispronounce my name just because it's either unfamiliar to them, they're too lazy to make the distinction between how to say Jamie and Jamia, or they assume my name is challenging. Because of racist stereotypes about black people's names being too difficult to enunciate. Why? Because calling other humans by their chosen name is one of the most basic ways we can show respect and consideration for one another. Our names are also how people know our work, our art, and our intellectual property. And what's more, street harassment and the nature of so many of our culture's institutions have us feeling like objects and numbers most of the time. So, it makes the integrity of our names even more sacred. The moment when I started getting really real about my name happened when I was studying abroad in Italy. Some dudes that I met in the neighborhood started calling me Jamiroquai after the pop band. When one guy passed me a note that said, Hi sexy Jamiroquai, at school, less than 24 hours after I told him I didn't like the nickname the night before, I responded with these lines from the one and only Queen Latifah. Don't you be calling me out my name, I bring wrath to those who disrespect me like a dame. Let's just say that he called me Jamia for the rest of the semester, and hopefully he learned something about coming correct instead of being creepy moving forward. Although I was feeling feisty in that moment, there've been many other instances where I've had to contain my inner eye roll because I didn't want to be characterized as the angry black girl or the shrill bitch who takes herself too seriously. But there's a reason my parents named me Jamia after learning about its origins on a trip to East Africa. And it was never their intention for it to be Jamie, Jamaica, or my most loathed, hated, hell no, don't ever think you can call me that again, Jemima. Since some situations require me to resist the urge to say, my name is easy, it's phonetic, it's only five letters long. This is how you spell it. I have to recognize that it is better not to offend, embarrass, or make a situation even more awkward by not giving folks who might be your potential employer, media announcer, or teacher the benefit of the doubt. This is why I stick to these principles in situations where there's presumed good intent and not any racist or sexist nonsense involved. One, I keep it real gently, clearly, and early. As soon as I hear it mispronounced, I interject and say, it's pronounced Jamia. Two, if it's a phone call from a number I don't recognize or a new relationship with someone I only know from email or social media, I answer the phone by saying, hello, this is Jamia. Three, if I've been introduced by the wrong name at an event or a meeting, I reintroduce myself when it's my turn to speak by saying a greeting and then mentioning my own name. If I know I'll be introduced by someone who hasn't met me, I'll provide them with the pronunciation in advance. So here's an example. Hi, I'm Jamia Wilson, so excited to be speaking with you today. 4. When people who aren't close family or friends call me my nickname, Mia, I politely inform them that I prefer to be called by my full name, by anyone who didn't either raise me or know me as a child. While there's affectionate exceptions for this one, it's been a really good anecdote to the long list of folks who have said that they will call me Mia from the start because they claim my name is oh so hard because it's new to them. 5. I make a point of conjuring good name karma by asking folks I meet how they pronounce their name and taking the time to learn how to pronounce it properly even when they offer me a short or more familiar version. It's a great way to spread love to folks whose names get mangled all the time, and also an important opportunity to role model being an ally for others. In a perfect world, everyone would pronounce our names the way that we or our mamas intended, but we can't guarantee that although most people mean well when they mispronounce our names, they won't always get it right. That's why it's on us to set an example by setting healthy boundaries and defining ourselves for the world. That was Rookie
0: contributor Jamia Wilson bringing us a very important life skill. Thanks so much for listening to The Rookie Podcast. We'll be back next week with more, including an interview with the president of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards. We don't even actually use the terms pro-life and pro-choice anymore because they're so politicized now that they don't actually reflect I think really how people think about issues of abortion and reproductive health care. She's so amazing. That'll be next week. I'm your host, Tavi Gevinson. If you like The Rookie Podcast, please give us a rating and review the show on iTunes. I know that sounds incredibly generic, but it actually helps the show a lot when the iTunes section is glowing with positivity. And if you've done that and you've tweeted and Instagrammed about how much you loved it and you're just looking for other ways to express your love... You can um, do like um, one of those reaction videos, like where people are like me showing my grandma this gross viral video. But it'll be like me making my grandma listen to the Rookie podcast and she'll just be like, this is lovely. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's your grandma. Seriously, though, it really helps us to know what you like about the show and who you'd like to hear from next. You can find us at RookieMag.com, Rookie.MTV.com, and at Rookie Mag on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at TaviTool, T-A-V-I-T-U-L-L-E. Plus, check out Podcasts.MTV.com and at MTV Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram for more shows from the MTV Podcast Network. Live it up, it's Saturday night, so let's.
1: This episode of Rookie was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, Kasia Mihailovich, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to Lauren Redding for making the Rookie Podcast happen, and thanks to Lena Singer for picking advice questions, and to Shamir for the Rookie theme song. Thanks to Maria Inez Gold for the portraits and doodles, to Cynthia Marhedge for Rookie's logo, to Hattie Stewart for the logo doodles, and to Beth Heckel for the jewels.